Romans chapter number 5 today. We begin a new chapter. We were three weeks in chapter number 4, and today we come to Romans chapter number 5. Finally, is that what you say? Oh, I'm flying. That's right. <laughs> flying through it. As if you remember, when uh, we began the study in the book of Romans, we talked about uh, a famous British pastor from the mid-20th century, and uh, he preached in Westminster Chapel, and uh, he began his series in, I think, 1966 on Friday nights in the book of Romans, and he finished somewhere around 1980, I believe, so, um, but we're going at warp speed compared to that. And of course, if you're joining us for the first time, as I know several of you are today, um, this is the theme. The book of Romans is a foundational book to the, all Christian teachings. I mean, to understand the essence of Christianity, you couldn't find a better place to study than the book of Romans. Many people will say, if you want to understand who Jesus is, start with the book of John. And if you want to understand the core of Christianity, continue on into the book of Romans. And what I've found interesting as we've done this, and I'll do it again today, is there's so much overlap between the life of Christ and the things that Jesus taught, and then the teachings that are expounded in the book of Romans. So the theme is good news, because the gospel, the gospel is the good news. That's what it means. So we live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. We live in a time when uh, the news and our social media, all this is just reminding us of how messed up everything around us is. And people wonder, will things get better? What is going on? The Bible gives us the answers to those questions, and it gives us a real and a certain hope for the future. So I want you to look with me. Um, we'll skip over our theme verse today because I've got a lot to cover in just these eight verses. Let's look here at chapter 5, and I want you to see verse number 1. You'll see the theme of the message, gospel peace, pretty quickly here. So Romans 5, and let's just read verse number 1. If you would join me and read that out loud, I would really appreciate it. So let's begin Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, please help us this morning as we study the Bible. Lord, I pray that your truth would... Would, we would see its relevance to our lives, that we would understand it. God, I pray that you'd help me as I teach the scriptures, Lord. Give me clarity of thought. I pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would move through this room. I pray that you would speak to hearts individually. Lord, I need your help, and we as a church, we need your help to hear the word and apply it. So be with us. Meet with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 5 begins a new section. Notice this opening statement. Therefore, being, what's it say? Justified by faith. Now, if you just pick it up here, you, and, and you, didn't, you weren't with us for the previous weeks, you might miss the significance of that. Because Paul has just spent, the apostle has just spent four whole chapters, one-fourth of the book. There are 16 chapters in the book. He spent the first four chapters talking primarily about one topic. And what was that topic? That we are indeed what? You've been paying attention. We are indeed justified by faith. So I'm not going to go back and reestablish it except to say this. What that means is my standing before God is not based on what I do. It's not based on how religious I am. It's not based on all the good things that I think I am supposed to do. My standing before God is based entirely on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and my faith in those events. The fact that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. Justification by faith means this. We are saved. We are made right, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. He spent four chapters establishing that, proving that. But now what's going to happen is he's going to teach us, and we'll see this in the coming weeks, that now that 
that justification by faith is established. That is our basis. Now what we're going to see is how the gospel impacts the rest of our lives. So if this is true, and it is, but if this is true that my standing before God is simply based on what Jesus did for me, then how does that, what, if, what, it, what impact does that have on my life? What does that mean for me? How does that change the way I think, the way I feel, and then eventually the way I behave? Because if we just look at these teachings as theological, like, oh, yes, these are just facts, information, catechisms, and, and teachings, and doctrines, and theology, and textbook material. If all this is is textbook, and you say, I understand that justification is by faith. If that's all that we come away with, then we've missed the whole point. The truth is supposed to change us. So he doesn't move past the gospel. In fact, as Christians, we never move past the gospel. But what happens is we grow into a deeper understanding and a deeper experience of God's grace. God's grace. So what is that first experience? It's this. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have what? We have peace. We have peace with God. We have peace with God. That is the first implication of the gospel that we're introduced to. Because you are justified, you and I can have peace with God. So if you're following, following along, that's really the simple first point on the inside of your notes this morning, is that simple statement, listen, we can have peace with God. Can I ask you this question? How would you describe the state of your life this morning? State of your soul? Would you describe your spirit, your soul, as at peace? Or is there a troubledness? Is there a worry? Is there a fear? Is there an uncertainty? Remember, we're talking, this whole series is good news in a broken world. Is your soul, is your spirit under the, the, the control and the influence of all the, the happenings around? Or do you have a settled peace? Because that's what the scripture is talking about. There's a story. You can read about it in Mark chapter 4. This is when Jesus was teaching his disciples. Some of you know this story. They had spent a long, busy day working among the people. Jesus did miracles, and uh, he taught people. And I mean, they were just busy, and everybody was tired, but they had to get in the boat. They had to get in a boat, and they had to go travel across the Sea of Galilee because there was more work to do on the other side. So the disciples and Jesus got in the boat. But everyone was tired, and so some of the disciples, they're doing their job, and Jesus needed some rest. So Jesus took a little break, and some of you know where he went. Where did he go? He went down into the lower part of the ship. And what did he do there? What miraculous thing did Jesus do down in the lower? What did he do? He slept. He went and took a nap. Interesting, we, believe, we understand Jesus was fully God, but also fully man. And in his humanity, Jesus says, guys, you guys have been fishing and running these boats for a long time, and I'm just going to leave the experts to the job. I'm going to take a nap. And so Jesus goes to take a nap. But the Sea of Galilee, it's really a large lake. And it, I imagine it's very calm when they got in the boat. But they didn't go very far. And all of a sudden, you know, some of you know what happened, what took place. There's a storm. There's a storm. Now, it was such an intense storm that these experienced fishermen, these experienced men who'd been on the lake, they'd been in boats, in and around boats their whole life, they were so afraid that they thought that this was it. I mean, the wind is so intense, the waves are crashing around them, their boat is, has almost capsized multiple times, and they think this is it. This is the day that we are lost at sea. And they're looking around, and who's not involved in any of the frantic panic that's going around? 
Who has refused to participate in the fear and the anxiety? Jesus. Because while the boat is rocking and rolling, and, and, and I, forget, I don't know, I'm out of nautical terms. I don't know any of them. But anyway, all this is taking place, and Jesus is still what? He's still asleep. And the disciples wake him up. They, they, I don't know if they shook him or just called for him, but somebody's, hey, wake him up. And they said, Master, don't you care that we are about to die? Don't you care that we're about to die? And as the ship is turning and tossing, Jesus, I imagine, I, we don't have a full description, but I imagine he grabs the side of the boat to steady himself. He gets up, he stands, he stands up in the, bo the boat, and he rebukes. That's the word that's used. He rebukes. Hey! <laughs> he rebukes the wind and the waves, and he says three words. If you know it, say it with me. He says, peace, be still. Peace, be still. And as soon as he said that, the Bible says that the wind and the waves, they ceased, and the sea was calm. Well, why did Jesus allow them to go through that storm? I mean, Jesus knew what was going to happen. But he allowed the disciples to be in the midst of this dangerous and difficult situation so that they could learn that in the midst of trouble, in the midst of panic all around, if Jesus is in the boat, if Jesus is in the ship, there can be what? Peace. And you and I, listen, we will never, there will never be, there will never be perfect peace as long as this world is in control down here. As long as these kings and presidents and, and, and dictators, as long as mankind is running the show, there is never going to be peace outside the boat, ever. But Jesus said, and we'll see this verse later, he says, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives it, but Jesus says, I will give you peace. Now, you can choose to believe that or not. I'm going to spend the rest of our message this morning making a case from the Bible why you can find that peace, how you can have that peace. And if you say, you know what, Ethan, I do believe that because I've been a Christian for years or months or however long, you say, I know that Jesus brings peace. You know it's true but maybe this morning you need to remember that it's true, that he brings peace. We have peace with God. Let me move through some of this quickly here. First of all, notice this here. That it says we have peace with God. Verse number one, therefore, being justified, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't, don't hurry past and, and I know you're like, how are you going to get through this if you just stay in verse 1 the whole time? I'll, I'll pick up speed. I'll pick up speed here, I hope. All right, so it says, therefore, being justified by faith. Don't just move over that. What does it say? It's not a, that is the present status. That is the present standing of everyone who believes in Christ. It's not that you, that you were once justified. And, and be, by the way, because we are justified by faith, that is a complete and entire security. Because if you were justified by your religious behavior, therefore being justified by your good behavior, would there be any security there? Because as soon as your behavior changed, what would happen to your justification? It'd be over. See, justification is secure. We have a secure, we have peace with God because there is a secure, unchanging position in Christ. We are. That is the present condition of your life if you are in Christ. If you've believed on Christ, first of all here in this peace with God, your standing is secure. Also notice this, the relationship has been restored. We can have peace with God. Now, if you remember, I began by explaining peace in an uncertain times. In uncertain times. But understand this, the Bible teaches that no men and women are naturally at peace with God. And this will come, come out a little bit later on as well in the message. 
But you need to understand this, that we are born into this world with a sinful nature. The, the book of Romans will teach this explicitly. That, that is the reason, by the way, you say, well, I don't know if I believe that's true. That is the reason. Look at the evidence in your own life. How much time do you have to spend convincing yourself to do wrong things? Or does that come pretty effortlessly to you? It comes pretty effortlessly to me. I don't have to try to mess things up. I don't have to try to be selfish. I don't have to try to be dishonest. I don't have to try to, to be covetous or greedy. I don't have to. In fact, I have to spend most of my time trying to not do those things. Why? Because at our core, we are flawed. The Bible calls that sin. At our core, we're broken. And our natural condition is we are hostile to God. We are hostile to his way. We are hostile to his word. And we want to be, the root of it is this, I want to be my own God. I want to order my life my own way. That's why when Jesus came, what did we do to him as, as humanity? When Jesus came, what did we do to him? We killed him. Because at our nature, mankind is hostile to God. But something changed. God's desire was not for to be at odds with his creation. God's desire was not to be at what the, the word is enmity, that there's a state of hostility between God and mankind. God's desire is to be in relationship with his creation. God created us to know him, to have a relationship with him. But our hostility has affected that. But because of Jesus, look what it says, therefore being justified by faith, what's happened? The sin that caused the problem has been removed. And because of that, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus on the cross paid the price for sin. He removed the hostility. He made a way for our standing to be secure. He made a way for our relationship to be restored. And then also look at this. He approved our access to God. I love this in the uh, in, in verse number two. So first it says, justified by faith, peace with God. Notice now verse number two, by whom also, could you give me verse number two, please? By whom also we have, what's the word? Access. By whom also we have access. Now the word access there, you know what it means. It means you're allowed in. You've been, you've been granted access. This was a restricted area, but now you are able to enter. But what is this access? Is this like a VIP backstage pass? You can see all the you know, inner workings of, of, of spirituality. Is that what we're talking about? No. This is direct access into a relationship with God. That because of our sin, we were separated. But because of Jesus, we've been granted what? Access. We've been given access. This is, this is um, pretty incredible. Look with me at, uh, I gave you on your notes, there's this passage from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. Who is that? Does anyone know who that is? That's Jesus. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. In other words, what he's saying there is Jesus, who is the high priest, he, he, he can relate to us. Why? Because he became human. And in fact, in all ways, in all points, he was tempted just like who? Just like us, except the difference was he was tempted and had no, there's no sin. Now, because Jesus did that, because Jesus made a way, look at verse 16. Let us, therefore, come, what's it say? Boldly. Come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's because of Jesus, because Jesus paid the price, because Jesus shed his blood. He made the way for you and me to have access into fellowship and into a relationship 
with God. He made the way when He paid for our sins on the cross. So you see in verse, verse 2 back in Romans chapter 5, so we saw in verse 1 we have peace with God, and because of that Jesus gives us access. And now look at the end of verse number 2. So by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and now the end, and we rejoice. There's a happiness. There's a, there's a, there's a sense of, of pleasure and joy and happiness. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We understand that what this peace does for us, because my eternity is settled, because I now have a relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ, I no longer have to worry. I no longer have to be afraid of what will happen to my life, what will happen when I die. No, there's a hope. There's a, there's a certainty that when I die, that the worst thing, listen, the worst thing that can happen to me is that I die and go into the presence of God. It's the worst. That's not a bad future. When your eternity is settled, there's far less to fear in this temporary life. Now, we have peace with God. <clears throat> we have peace with God. Now, because of that, the second part here is this, as we move into verse 3 and 4. Because of this now, our lives have purpose and meaning. What's the purpose of your life? What is the purpose of your life? Now, answer that question without any kind of theological or religious answer. What is it? In a, in a day and age that is increasingly secular, people don't, they don't want any religion or anything like that in their life. Answer that question, what is the purpose? What is the meaning of your life? We live in a generation, I've, done, I've said this before, but we live in a generation where in kindergarten, no, in preschool, they say, you're special. There's no one like you. How many of you, they told you that in kindergarten or preschool? Anybody out there? Yeah, that's right, Billy. You're like, yeah, they told me that. You believed them too, didn't you? Absolutely. You're special. There is no one like you at all. That's, that's preschool, kindergarten, first grade, second. Now, that message continues. But then when you get to, I, I don't know, I'm not an educator, but you get to about fifth grade, and things start to change a little bit. Because you go to fifth grade, and in fifth grade, yes, you're still special and there's no one like you, except you begin to learn that actually you are a cosmic accident that in, in, in ages past of chaos, the universe is, well, where did the universe come from? Not important. But the universe is swirling around in cosmic chaos. And by happenstance, there was a, I'm trying not to oversimplify this to offend anyone who actually studies cosmology, okay? So forgive my oversimplification. But by a sheer accident of molecular chance, boom, the solar system that we know, the world that we live. So really, friend, you're special. There's no one like you except... You are a, a massive mistake of the solar system. And one day, it's all going to burn up because the sun's going to destroy it all, they tell me. But you are special. Your life has value and purpose. Why are not more people challenging the inherent contradiction in those two viewpoints? Do, aren't, they, aren't those exclusive concepts that your life has value, meaning, and purpose, but at the same time you are an evolutionary mistake? You see, it is only, it is only with the undergirding 
of a creator, of, a, of, of one who designed it all. And, and, and people can debate how God brought that all to pass, but the only point I want to make today is this. The only point I want to make today is this. Without a creator, without a, an intelligent creator, you cannot, I challenge you, to give me any other reason for the value and meaning and purpose to your life. But because of what has been revealed in the Scripture, because of what is revealed in Christ, we can know that our lives have purpose and meaning. We can know that we are not a mistake, that we were put here by a loving Creator who has order and purpose and a plan. Now, now that is in the, the grand scheme, but now let's bring it to where we live. Okay, so I believe then that my life, has, because God has created me, then my life has value, it has meaning, it has purpose. But then, Ethan, how does that affect how I live today? Well, if you're in Christ, if you're justified by faith, and you have peace with God, Paul explains that in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3 and 4, he says this. So, so back it up one verse to verse 2, so we pick up where we left off. The end of verse number 2 says, We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now verse 3. And not only so... But we glory in what? Tribulations. Those are difficulties. Those are trials. Those are bad things. It's bad stuff that happens in our life. How many of you have gone through some bad stuff in your life? Yeah. This is, this is the bad stuff. The Bible actually tells us how to deal with the bad stuff. We glory in it. Now, that seems kind of strange. When you say glory, the idea is that there's a holy celebrating. There's a rejoicing. Well, why would we rejoice? Why would we glory in the bad things that happened? How many of you have ever had anybody say this to you? They say, well, I, I cannot believe in God because of all of the terrible things that happen in the world. Well, my question would be this. If there is no God, then why do all the terrible things even matter? And who says they're really terrible after all? In fact, it is only through knowing God that there, is any, that there is any understanding of the bad things that happen in the world. And so that question that, and, and listen, I was like many of you as a, as a young adult, I had to wrestle with some of these questions and decide, do I just inherit a belief system from my parents or do I believe this for myself? And the problem of suffering, the problem of pain, the problem of evil, many people have been challenged by it. But, but, but as I look at it, it is only by running to the Creator. It is only by running to the, to the Lord does, does any meaning come from it. In fact, back, back us up again there to verse number 3. We glory in tribulations. Why? Because God has a purpose and a plan even for the suffering. Now, does God always explain His reason for it all? He doesn't. But this is what He does tell us. Now, I want you to notice this statement here. We do not seek trials and difficulties, but as Christians, we do embrace them as gifts from a loving God who is working all things for our good. When I was, a little personal, little personal testimony. When I was a child, right into my teen years and early, very early adult years, I feared a lot of things. I worried. Any worriers in here by nature? You're just a worrier? Who's, who's with me? That, that few of us? Come on. Just worriers, you know? I think there's more of you out there, but whatever. I worried that, that something bad would happen. I worried that somebody I love would die. I, 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 you know, I was the kind of kid that if mom and dad went out for dinner and left us home, they're never coming back, I guess. You know, that was me. That's an exaggeration. That's an exaggeration, okay? But you understand. You know, I mean, come on. How many of you, you were the kid, you went through those kind of things? Sometimes we, but listen, do we carry those childhood fears into life with us? We do. It was, I don't know, I was probably 18 or 19 before I, I found peace. I had been a Christian longer than that. But I had to understand God's purpose for pain and trials. I remember that, and I put the reference in there. We're not looking at the verse today, but the Bible says that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. 
Now, if, you're not, if you don't know God, if you don't know Christ, then, you, then this assurance isn't really for you. But it can be. It can be. Because I had to realize that God promised that whatever happened in my life was only going to be for my what? For my good. That means that even if I couldn't understand it, even if I faced something that was terrible, I simply had to believe God's promise that he would take whatever was bad and he would turn it to good. When you get a hold of that, and this is why we walk by faith and not by sight, when you can believe that, and you're there, you say, Ethan, I wish I could believe that. Yeah, that's something that even if you don't believe it, you wish you could believe it. But when you get alone with God and his word, and when you understand, and when you've been fully persuaded by what God has said, you understand that, listen, even the most terrible thing that I could imagine happening in my life, that if God can turn that to good, then you know what? I can trust him. I can trust him. And it was then that I found, found that peace. To understand that there's a purpose and a meaning behind it all. In fact, I, I put another scripture here. It's 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Speaking of difficulties and trials, the apostle would say this, for which cause? In other words, because of these difficulties, we faint not, or we don't give up. But though our outward man, though these bodies perish, even if this, this, this body is just going through suffering, it's going through difficulty, it's going through death, yet the, in Christ, the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What, the point of this verse is this. Down here, we don't see the whole picture. Down here, we can't see the full story. But there is an eternal purpose. And verse 18 explains it this way. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Listen. The story of your existence is far greater. The story of your existence is far greater than the 80 years. If you know the average lifespan is getting up there now, that we get to live down here. In fact, let's think of it this way. I like this illustration. If this side of the room over here represents eternity past, and that side of the room, if we were to take a string, we were running a string from that wall all the way to that wall and said, that is eternity. Now, it's too small, obviously. Where on that line would you put your life? How much space would it take? You couldn't see it. It'd be microscopic. And the point is this, you and I have been created for the whole span, not for the microscopic moment. We were not simply created, but, but what you do, what you do in this microscopic moment that we call life, James would say it's like a vapor. It's like a, a breath in a cold day. It's here for a little while, it's gone. What happens in this in this microscopic moment can affect all of your eternity. Don't get Jesus wrong. Don't make the wrong decision about Christ. But then Christian, take hope. Because in the, in the verse we just saw, it's a light affliction that appears for just a moment. But it's working a far greater weight of glory. He says this back in Romans 5. He says that, in verse number three, we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation works patience, verse four, and patience experience, and experience hope. So do you see the, do you see the flow there? Bad things, tribulation, patience, experience, hope. Tribulation, patience, experience, hope. This is the journey that we're on. Well, what, is this, what does patience mean? Now, now you've got to follow the sequence because I think there's something really cool at the end of this. 
So some diff- I'm, a, I'm a believer, I'm in Christ, so a difficulty comes in my life. What is God trying to teach me first of all? He's teaching me what? Patience. Now this isn't the kind of patience that is waiting in line at the checkout. The word is the, the Greek word means to remain under. It's the idea of endurance, that I'm going through something difficult. I'm going through something heavy. And as long as I have God, as long as I have Christ, this heaviness, I'm still at peace because as I carry that load, he's giving me the strength to deal with this. But now this is really cool. After I come through that, there's a trial, there's a difficulty. It brings me, and then I experience God's strength. I experience his patience. Then it leads me to what's the next step? Well, we missed one. I said it, I guess, but it's experience. What is that? Experience. It can also be translated, some translations will say that tribulation works patience. Patience brings character. But the Greek word is interesting. It's actually the word proof. Proof of what? Experience of what? Character formed by what? This is what happens. And I think this is how does God use difficulties in our lives? As we patiently endure and we come through, those experiences become the proof that God is with us and that he will do what he has promised. They are the proof. And it says then experience brings hope. Now, hope is not an uncertain or wishful thinking. Well, I just hope it all works out. My kids hope we'll stop for ice cream. You know, my, we, we hope that this will happen. I've said it this way. It's not a hope so. It's a hope that is so. People have described it as a confident expectation. It's a belief. It's a certainty that the future is based on the promise of God and it has been proven in my life. It's been proven, that, that experience. It's God's promise for the future has, is proved in the present. So get this. It's a promise for the, for the future that was made in the past and is proven in the present for me. Through the, that's what God is doing. That is God's purpose for the trials and the difficulties. He says, we have peace with God. There's a purpose for our lives. There's a meaning behind our lives. And then finally, and, and maybe most importantly, that really the, the clincher for all of this is this, the understanding that we are deeply loved. Don't miss that. If you've, if you've been in church since you were a kid, and we, and we even sang about it today, oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. When you're... Little, you learn one of the first songs Christian parents teach their kids, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. You hear that over and over again, that you're loved, God loves you, Jesus loves you, etc., etc., etc. But now he's going to remind us, hey, you're justified by faith. You've got peace with God. What does that mean? It means that there's a purpose and a meaning for your life. And it's, that is because, why is all of this taking place? Because, friend, you and I, we are deeply, deeply loved. Now look at, look at read with me verses 5 through 8, and then we'll, we'll take a few minutes on them. Verse number 5, And hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because, what's it say? Because what? The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by who? The Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. That's the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, for when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ, what did he do? How did he show his love? He died for the ungodly. Verse 7, scarcely, in other words, it's surprising, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. In other words, it surprises us when somebody dies for someone else. That's a good person. But God commendeth his love toward us. Not while we were righteous, but while we were what? While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us while we were sinners. 
The love of God is shed abroad in our heart. But back up to this statement. This is an important one in verse number 5 as he introduces this idea of being loved. Back to verse number 5. It says that this hope maketh not what? Ashamed. Hope maketh not ashamed. This is a love without shame. Humanity has been cursed with shame for since the beginning. Say, what do you mean cursed with shame? You and I feel shame. We feel shame all through our lives. We feel that we don't measure up. We feel that we don't compare to other people. We feel unworthy. We feel unloved. We feel ashamed. Now, modern psychology just tells us, you feel that way? Don't feel that way. Well, okay, but I feel that way. Well, don't feel that way. Okay, but I have things in my life that I'm ashamed of. Well, just forget about them, but I remember them. Well, don't think about them, but I remember them, and I'm ashamed. Anybody found any help yet there? There's this sense of shame in our lives. Why? Because we're shameful people. Listen, you, you can go to, a, to, to certain schools of psychology that will tell you otherwise, but my friend, if I played the thoughts of your mind or you played the thoughts of my mind on the screen this morning from the last week, I would be ashamed. And I dare say, if I played your life just from the last week on that screen, all the things nobody knows, what went through your mind, you would be what? You'd be ashamed. If your spouse knew every single thing about the deepest part of who you are, they might have a hard time loving you. Why? Because we have in the deepest, darkest places of our life, we have shame. We have guilt. And as much as we try to wash it away or forget about it, it's still there. And that's why we ask these questions. We say, you say, well, I don't believe it. But you've experienced it. You've experienced it because in your heart, you've felt unlovable. You've felt unworthy. But the beauty of this passage is God says, I will love you with a shameless love. God is the only one who knows every detail of your being. The good, the bad, and the ugly. He knows all of it. In fact, this happened, if you know the story of Adam and Eve, it says that they heard the voice of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Why did Adam and Eve have to hide from God in the garden? Because they were ashamed. They were ashamed. But God said, I love them despite their shame. And an amazing thing happened. When Jesus went to the cross, he not only took our sin, but the Bible says he took our shame. He took the sense of guilt. He took our unworthiness. In fact, dying on a cross, being hung on a cross, the book of Galatians tells us, was looked at as the curse of all deaths. The most shameful death you could ever, you could ever die. And Jesus went to the cross. Listen, friend, he took our shame. He took our shame to the cross, but then he buried it in his tomb, never to be remembered. Hebrews 12 and verse number two, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, what's the next thing say? Despising the shame. All of the shame of humanity, the guilt you feel, the unworthiness you feel, Jesus experienced that on the cross. But listen, because, because he was perfect, because he was sinless. Listen, when you and I are faced with our shame, we feel guilt. When Jesus took his shame, what was his attitude toward it? He did what? He despised it. He says, I hate this shame. This is the shame that has destroyed my beloved creation. I despise the shame. He took our sin. He bore our sin. He bore our shame. 
And he said, this awful shame is what has separated humanity. This awful shame is what has kept them from, from experiencing my love. And he put sin to death. He put shame to death. He buried it in the tomb. And when Jesus came out of the tomb, the sin and despair and shame stayed buried forever. Forever. Because this is a love unlike any human love. You have peace with God. You can have peace with God. And it's a love that you can never experience from any other human. I can have friendships. I can be at peace and good in some human level. But the peace of God, the love of God is like no human love you've ever experienced. You see, it's a love from Father, Spirit, and Son. If you paid attention to the Scriptures, it was the Father. Some people have this wrong concept that there's an angry judge in heaven who's the Father. And then Jesus says, well, 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 Father, don't be mad at them. I'll go and pay the penalty. No, the love came from the heart of the Father to save His creation. And the Father sent the Son who said, I will go and I will pay for their sin. I will give my life for sinners. And the angels must have thought, this is the most amazing thing we've ever seen because these people are shameful. These people are guilty. These people are undeserving. And the, and, and the Father said, we, we, we love them. And the Son said, I'll go. And then the Spirit takes the love and He sheds it abroad in our hearts. It's a love that is Father, Son, and Spirit. By the way, how can God be love unless He is a trinity? Who was He loving in eternity past? But there is perfect love between Father, Son, and Spirit. And interestingly enough, that word back in Romans, look with me in Romans chapter 5 at verse number, back in verse number 5. It says, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. You say, what does that word shed mean? It literally is the same as the shedding of blood. It's poured out. The love of God was shed on the cross. There's a, there's a gospel song from a couple decades ago. I love you. God said, I love you. And he wrote it in red with his blood. And then the Holy Spirit takes that love. And the experience that you and I can have today is that he sheds his, he's, he pours out, he pours out the love of God into our hearts. Listen, if you began, I asked you at the beginning, do you have any peace in your life? Do you have that? Do you, or are, are, are you in turmoil? Realize this morning, you are, be, you are loved more than you could possibly imagine. The Father, the Son, the Spirit demonstrated their love. Let's finish with verse number 8. Can you, let's put verse number 8 on the screen. We'll finish here. But God demonstrated, He commendeth, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for you. He died for me. Two people in the room. Well, you say there's more than two people. No, there's, there's two spiritual profiles in the room. One, our Christian people who have received Christ, but they've forgotten how much they're loved. Let the love of Christ be the motivating factor in your life. But there's a second person in the room. There's a second spiritual profile. And that would be someone who until this morning has never fully understood how sinful and shameful they are, but at the same time how loved and accepted they can be in Christ. What you need to do this morning is you need to call out to Christ. You need to give your life to Jesus. You need to ask Jesus to save you. Therefore, we begin with being justified by faith. You could never be good enough to earn that love. But if you'll put your faith in Jesus, you can receive that love today. Would you do this with me? We're bringing the service to a close in just a minute. But would you just go to prayer with me right now? Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes as we come to this time of prayer? In just a moment, we'll, we'll play some music. We'll sing a concluding song. But don't let any of that distract you. Don't be distracted by 
us preparing to sing or anything like that, I want you to go back to those questions. And in a prayerful, contemplative way, I'd like you to ask you those questions again. Are you a Christian who's forgotten how much God loves you? Have you forgotten the peace that you have with God, the purpose in your life? This morning, in prayer, take a moment and just let the Lord speak to your heart. Let God minister to your heart. But if you're here this morning, maybe there's somebody in the room, maybe there's somebody listening to the message, and you'd say, Ethan, I don't have that peace. I didn't know there was this much meaning to my life. If I died today, I don't know if I would go to heaven. The Bible says you can have that peace, you can have that certainty, but it doesn't come through church, it doesn't come through being a good person, it comes through Jesus. If you're ready right now, I want to invite you right now to receive Christ. You can, you can do it right where you sit. Just in your heart, pray something like this. Say, Dear Lord, I know that I am a sinner. I'm ashamed of who I've been. But I believe that you love me. I believe you died and rose again for me. And I trust you by faith. I trust you by faith to save me from my sin. Would you pray something like that to the Lord right now? Say, Jesus, I do believe in you. I do, I, I do ask you to save me. Right now, make this the moment that you put your full faith and your full trust in Christ. Step into that peace with God. Let's have a quiet moment of prayer as the instruments play this morning. Father, we pray that if someone in here has never put their trust and faith in you, that today would be the day that they would believe that you died for them, that you rose for them, and you paid their penalty. Father, for those of us who are believers, we pray they would be challenged by that thought today, that we live in the hope that you've given us. In Jesus' name. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You could also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.